From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your coat on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Freddy Silva is a leading researcher of alternative history, ancient knowledge, and sacred sites. He's standing by to discuss the lost art of resurrection. Uh, first, as always, let me introduce the boys in the band here in studio on the Flying V Gibson guitar, my technical producer and fine rockabilly friend, Ian Robertson. And here in studio on the Rickenbacker bass guitar and occasionally the theremin, my favorite instrument, Albert Vinzel, and then on the Hammond B3, Ryan White. Gentlemen, welcome. Before we get to Freddie, it's time for our weekly remote viewing experiment. So I ask all of you assembled here in studio, uh, and also those of you listening at home or in your car, to direct your attention to the cigar box. Can we get a shot of the cigar box on the YouTube stream there? It's sitting uh, on the desk to my left here in studio at 70 Jefferson Avenue. I'm giving you the coordinates now. 70 Jefferson Avenue in Liberty Village in Toronto. Utilize your remote viewing skills. Clear your mind. Don't guess. This is important. Don't just blurt out an answer. You've got to allow the shape in here. The size, the texture, the color, the form of the object to take form in your mind. And uh, if you want to play along at home, listeners can tweet me their answer using the hashtag TCS Remote. TCS, as in The Conspiracy Show, TCS Remote. And again, you've got to tweet me the answer. Don't send it to me in an email. And if you're, if you're in the live chat on uh, YouTube, please don't send it there because I, I don't have time to look in all these different places. So just tweet me, hashtag TCS Remote. And uh, for the listener who comes closest to identifying the object, I'll send you some fabulous Conspiracy Show merchandise. Uh, and if you're a fan of the Conspiracy Show, why not show it off and help support the program by purchasing some official Conspiracy Show merchandise. You can browse our line of T-shirts and mugs and phone cases by going to the website cons- theconspiracyshow.com, theconspiracyshow.com, and then just uh, click on the online store in the menu. Now, I just want to mention something before we get to a Freddy, something upcoming. My colleague at Coast to Coast AM, my colleagues, I should say, George Norrie and his producer, Tom Danheiser, are going to be in town uh, for the Total Health Show. And that's uh, happening April 21st, 22nd, and 23rd. April 21st, 22nd, 23rd, and uh, that's at the Metro Toronto Convention Center. Again, George and Tom, they'll be part of a special meet and greet and uh, for more information, just visit the website TotalHealthShow.com. TotalHealthShow.com. All right, it's uh, it's fitting as we uh, head into uh, Easter or Pascha, uh, when Christians mark the uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we should be uh, delving into the topic of resurrection tonight. Um, which reminds me, in a couple of weeks, on the 16th of April. Dr. Gary Chang will be with us for the full two hours to talk about the Shroud of Turin. Uh, but that's coming up in a few weeks. Tonight, this hour, we're going to discuss 
how thousands of years before the resurrection of Jesus, initiates from spiritual traditions around the world, from Central America to Mongolia, uh, Egypt, practiced a secret mystical ritual in which they metaphorically died and were reborn into a highly spiritual state. And that is, of course, uh, the uh, the subject of Freddy Silva's latest book. Freddy is a leading researcher in alternative history, ancient knowledge, sacred sites, and the interaction between temples and consciousness. He's appeared on the Discovery Channel, BBC, Coast to Coast. And uh, again, the latest book is The Lost Art of Resurrection, Initiation, Secret Chambers, and the Quest for the Other World. Freddy Silva, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hello, Richard. Good to be on again. It has been too long. We uh, we flew you up here to Toronto for the TV show. We were talking about crop circles. That's uh, right. That's... If I knew that you're going to have a flying V in the Rickham backer in the studio, I'd have been there earlier. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you play a, a musical instrument, Freddie? It, these days, it's a matter of opinion. I have a Fender Stratocaster, which is lying there looking very forlorn. As a writer, you didn't get much chance to play in my... Uh, my fingers, the pressure of my fingers, you, you know how it is. You I do. Start losing that pressure. Sure. I keep practicing with a little sort of ball every single day when I'm not typing something, but, oh, getting that pressure, those calluses back on your fingers, it hurts. Indeed. Well, I'm not much of a musician myself, although as a child I did play on the linoleum. Uh, <laughs> that's bad. That's bad. Uh, now, it's Sunday. <laughs> Cards on the table. Uh, I mean, I, I I am a Christian. I do believe in the in the in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I mentioned that we're going to be talking about the Shroud of Turin. And uh, I don't know if you've if you've delved into that at all. It's a fascinating um, uh, relic uh, artifact, probably the most studied relic in in uh, human history or artifact in human history. And I, it's some pretty compelling evidence that something you know there was a, something going on there. However. Um, it is fascinating as you as you have researched this that thousands of years before uh, Jesus, uh, you know, people weren't physically raised from the dead. It was more of a living resurrection. So tell me about this mystical practice. What does that mean exactly? A living resurrection. Well, that's what surprised me as well because when I was researching uh, the purpose of sacred sites around the world, I kept coming across this concept. Uh, of the risen and the dead, and it had nothing to do uh, uh, with the actual people be, uh, being nailed to a cross and then getting up uh, biologically from death. Uh, people that uh, actually uh, thought the people uh, took that literally said that they're basically idiots. Uh, they're taking a spiritual idea and confusing it with an actual event. And um, when I began to read the, or should I say reread the uh, Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip, uh, the two Gospels that were banned by the church, and I wanted to find out, well, why were they banned? You know, um, if this religion is so important, should we be so uh, all-inclusive? Uh, and I'm speaking as well uh, as a former Christian myself. And I suddenly became very aware that the early Christians were very, very different people to the way they've been portrayed today. And there was actually a big fight going on between fundamentalists and the Gnostics at the time. And, of course, the fundamentalists won. 
And this was the sort of the crux of the matter, because I wanted to find out why it was that, first of all, uh, is it true that the whole story of Jesus, uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection has been completely whitewashed uh, for, politically, uh, for political reasons by the church? And the early Christians said, yes, it was. And this is why we hid these books in caves in the hope that one day in the future, someone would find out the actual truth of real Christianity. And that got me very excited. Um, so I began to sort of research this concept in Egypt, in China, in Japan, in Polynesia, in South America, and found that actually the concept of resurrection was actually far older than Jesus. Um, it goes back to at least 3000 BC in China. Uh, there's a, a certain concept called the, uh, the Way, the Book of the 17 Ways, which from where the story comes from, which is found in uh, Japan. In a pre excuse me, a prehistoric text, which could be as much as six thousand years old, and these concepts eventually migrate towards the Middle East. And by the time you get to uh, Jesus' time, you have the Mandeans, who uh, is one of the many sects of the period, who were practicing this living resurrection. And what it was was the fact that you undertook a period of about three years of observation. You were uh, indoctrinated into a secret mystery school, and you were taught the true mysteries of life, how life really works, how the universe really exists, uh, not the way that we perceive it, and that these people were called the few who differentiated themselves from the many who were the people who were unaware of the bigger mysteries of life. Um, they just look at life as, you know, uh, uh, a very difficult um, life separated by birth, death, and pain in between. And yet these people have considered themselves to be different, not superior but different. And they used to talk about this thing called the living resurrection, which was the final stage of initiation after a three-year period, whereby the initiate, and this applied to men and women, um, undertook um, sort of a three-day event where they took a, a mild narcotic, they were heavily sedated, and they were guided by some adepts. Because this is a very dangerous um, procedure, apparently. Uh, they actually had an induced near-death experience uh, administered to the person. And they basically went comatose for three days. They left the body. And they wandered the other world, uh, completely aware of what they're doing, complete control, and in complete contrast to shamanism, uh, which is very interesting because when these people came back, and I'm talking about people like Plato and Pythagoras who also did this uh, procedure, and they said it's the highest level of spiritual development anyone can hope to experience in their lifetime. So these people, the early Christians, were talking about something that was very profound, a very profound experience, and they guarded it with their lives. Many of them took this, these secrets to their grave with them, and they were very upset that the whole story of Jesus had been completely twisted around to suit a religious dogma. And uh, even the Mandeans this very day, who still exist in southern Iraq, uh, are very annoyed about the way that the teachings of Jesus and John the Baptist and the people before them have been completely misunderstood and taken to be an actual event. So uh, after your research, I mean, you you uh, you believe that Jesus was an actual historical figure, but we have misunderstood the meaning of his resurrection. It's been completely hijacked by the fundamentalist Christians at the time, and we're talking now here between the first and fourth uh, centuries A.D., and uh, the idea was that um, there was a big um, sort of... Um, 
schism in Europe because the Roman Empire had, had collapsed. And, of course, there was this big vacuum of power. And, of course, religion is a wonderful way to uh, sort of fill in that vacuum. And uh, there are many sects around the time of the Middle East. Uh, they were all practicing the same thing. They all had slight differentiations about them. But they all agreed that uh, this uh, living resurrection ritual was to be guarded with your life. It should not be given to people who would use this for methods of control. Now, the church wasn't allowed in on this. Uh, and um, John the Baptist and Jesus were privy to these mystery secrets. And Jesus himself had practiced with the Essenes and the Mandeans. And then he decided, for reasons which are unknown to me and as far as I can figure out to anyone else, decided to form his own sect. Um, and this was just shortly after John the Baptist's death. Now, I have read the work of uh, Michael Bajant and um, his uh, colleagues who basically uh, figured out that it had something to do with the bloodline and the lineage of John the Baptist. Freddie, i gotta, I got to jump in here. Forgive me. We're going to take a time out. We'll come back and pick up on that point. The Lost Art of Resurrection, Initiation, Secret Chambers, and the Quest for the Otherworld. Freddie Silver right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind. On The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Freddie Silva is with us. Just a special uh, shout-out to everyone joining the live chat on our YouTube stream. Uh, Gord and Elcrab65, uh, American Zero, uh, You Betcha, uh, YY Anila, all of you. Uh, great to have you on board, as always. And just, just a reminder for our remote viewing experiment. Again, use the hashtag TCS Remote, and we'll do the reveal at the bottom of the hour. Actually, very quickly, I didn't go around the, uh, the table here. Uh, Elbert, first of all, what do you think, what is in the box? Not what do you think, what do you know is in the box? Uh, some weeks you draw a total blank, other weeks you're 100% right on. But um, I sort of get a feeling of a white golf ball, uh, or maybe an Easter egg, or a, a mirror. All right. R- uh, Ryan White. I was thinking a, a small metal puzzle, maybe. A small metal puzzle. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right. Ian in the other room. Uh, like Albert, I saw something like a sphere, like a circle. or A, a sphere or circle. Or a ball or some sort. All right. I saw blue, too, but uh, yeah. Okay, we'll do the, uh, the reveal at the bottom of the hour. And just a, a programming note, next week on the program... My mighty Aphrodite, my lovely bride, these last 17 years, will be sitting in the air chair and uh, guest hosting the program. So make sure you listen in, support her, the mighty Aphrodite. Uh, that's coming up next week. Now, she's going to maintain her anonymity. There will be no live YouTube stream. Uh, well, for the next several weeks, we'll pick it up again on April the 23rd. All right, back to Freddie Silva. Uh, you mentioned, you know, going back th- several thousand years, I think there's a, uh, uh, an example in the book, going back 3,000 years in Mongolia, um, and this kind of gives us a nice indication of how this worked. There was someone, uh, I can't remember this individual's name, who was sort of, was he metaphorically nailed to a tree and then buried underground for three days? Oh, that was, um, it wasn't Mongolia. Uh, it was, uh, let's see, it was in Iona. It was uh, an island in Scotland. Ah. It's actually a very interesting story. Uh, this is actually the time when the Christians are starting to actually take over the uh, the north of Europe, and they're sending out uh, evangelical people to uh, you know to teach the Celts how to do things properly. Except when they show up, uh, and they start talking about the story of a guy that gets nailed to a cross on the winter solstice and gets up three days later from the dead, they they just yawned and said, "Well, we've had that story for the last three thousand years because it's a guy called Isus." <laughs> 
that's uh, not too dissimilar to the guy that we know today. So um, this guy, Audrin, uh, he was um, the right-hand man of uh, St. Columba. He ends up on Iona, which is one of the holiest uh, islands in Scotland and has been for a long, long, long time, way before the Christians showed up. And uh, it was a big center for the Druids. The Knights Templar were there as well. And it was also a place where they revered women. Uh, everybody worked on an equal footing. So Audrin basically uh, finds this uh, chapel, which is in a kind of a ruined state, and it was uh, run by a bunch of very interesting monks called the Chaldee, which apparently were the vestige uh, of the Essenes who were run out of Jerusalem, and they, you know, they legged it across Europe, they end up in the north of Scotland. And the Chaldee were very much into this wonderful secret ritual where they basically were hermits and uh, one of their favorite things was to go onto this little hot spot uh, which they basically uh, put up some stones and created the chapel around and uh, they basically uh, would uh, conduct these raising ceremonies where they left the body for three days on the uh, winter solstice and the spring equinox and then they came back three days later from the dead so Audrin, being the uh, fine Christian gentleman that he was, he just says, absolute poppycock, absolute nonsense. So he decides to show that uh, these pagans were absolutely full of nonsense, and he has himself buried alive for three days. They dig him up three days later, and he gets up and he goes, and I quote, everything that we've been taught about hell is nonsense. <laughs> hmm. So he had himself an actual experience of the other world uh, in this particular hotspot, which is still there today, by the way. It's a lovely chapel. And uh, he basically realized that the whole concept of Christianity that he'd been taught uh, in the uh, Catholic era was completely wrong. Uh, they'd taken uh, this spiritual idea, this personal experience, which was a metaphor, uh, and uh, they basically said, no, it was actually a real event. A real guy got nailed to a cross and got up three days later. Well, the early Christians said that that's not the case at all. Uh, it's actually a metaphor describing the actual process of resurrection. But it's, it's a metaphor, but it, there's also a it seems like, from what you're describing, a, a supernatural component in that they do visit this other world. Well, what is this other world? It's another level of reality. I mean, I like to call it the uh, the room next door. Uh, if you sort of take the concept of shamanism, uh, for example, today it's uh, very popular to go and do ayahuasca retreats in the Amazon. Uh, if you talk to anybody in Central and South America, they'll say, well, it's kind of an approximation of uh, a much deeper ritual, which requires months out of your time, which none of us have today. And uh, basically, shamanism is a way to induce a certain state of visualization. And that's kind of where the living resurrection ritual actually begins, because it's, it goes much, much deeper than that, where it actually induces a near-death state, uh, very dangerous. And uh, in, in this highly controlled state, they were able to teach you after three years how to control your soul, to leave the body, uh, go walk about in complete control of what you're seeing, where you're going, who you're talking to, and come back with a full memory of this which is in contrast to shamanism, whereby the, uh, the drugs that you take induce the visions. These are not actual visions. These are actually you, part of your soul, actually goes into another frequency. The next, you can call it the fourth dimension, if you, if you prefer. And then you come back uh, totally under control um, and conscious of where you've been and come back into the body. So that, that was the difference between uh, one thing and the other. Uh, would it have anything to do with astral travel or even bilocation? Now, that's where it gets a little bit fuzzy, and I wasn't able to find any evidence to make the connection. However, 
uh, there were some scripts that I was sort of coming across and privy to in Tibet and Nepal uh, before they were all basically hushed up by the Chinese authorities and stolen. We don't know where they are today. But some accounts that were written in the 20s do suggest that uh, the uh, monks took this uh, initiation uh, concept to its nth degree. In other words, they basically stayed behind in the monasteries and did this for, for a living every day to find out how far they could take it. They did appear to suggest that, that, yes, you can get to a point where you can bilocate, you can do extraordinary things to bend the rules of nature to your will. And that was one of the things that people like Pythagoras and Plato talked about. In fact, Pythagoras did this so many times, he couldn't get enough of it. And he did say that there's a, uh, if once you uh, uh, have access to the other world and the information there, you actually can understand the mechanics of nature and the cosmos and how it works. And this is powerful stuff because it means that when you come back into your body, you have a certain degree of control of your manifestation process, which means you can bend uh, the rules to do things to your will. And this is why they didn't want to give this information out to anybody who would, would most likely misuse it against others, you see. That's why there's a secrecy behind it. So yes, I think there is a component where if you keep um, manipulating the laws of nature, you can do extraordinary things with the physical world. Now, because this was you know such a secret uh and they had these mystery schools and not everyone um you know was allowed they vetted them why would pythagoras and 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 plato uh, be able to, or why were they allowed to write about this they used to actually write it very cleverly there was actually a rule in greece uh even as far as the second century uh, whereby if you sat, if you and I, Richard, sat in a pub and actually described what uh, we'd experienced the night before in the other world, we'd be put in jail. They were really serious about this. Uh, Plato did it very, very well. In order not to betray the mystery secrets, he actually veiled the information through fictional characters. So when you actually read many of his books, uh, Timaeus is one of them, he actually wrote most of the process of the actual experience through a fictitious character. So um, the net effect is that uh, there were people throughout the uh, throughout Europe who took this stage uh, this concept a stage further they became the troubadours they would write stories and mysteries about the um, the lady in the tower who basically has to be um, rescued by this knight in shining armor all of these stories including the story of Arthur and the grail and the uh, the templar knights were all to do with the way that you get these stories across to the public without revealing what's really going on. And the idea was to get people interested uh, in an evening by a fireplace or in a in a tavern, and you'd be singing about the stories of, uh, you know, this wounded knight who goes walk about to marry his divine bride. And, you know, most people in the room would say, that's a very entertaining story. But there'd be the one person in there that would say, wait a minute, if I read between the lines, that's actually telling me there's a process here, and that's how they got you. They would say, wait a minute, this guy is interested, or this woman is interested, and then they will, they will pull you apart, and they will join you into the mystery schools. And that's where you uh, basically are taught different uh, truths about the world. You'd undergo a period of observation for about a year, and then if they uh, deemed that you were a responsible and a trustworthy person, that's when they began to reveal the biggest secrets, and that's how they did it. It was all to do with metaphors and plays and stories that get you in, excited enough to actually want to know more. It was very, very clever. So, again, th- this was not just open to priests or in Egypt to pharaohs. Uh, even women in ancient times could become an initiate in these mystery schools. 
Absolutely. It wasn't an elitist thing. In fact, it's a wonderful example, uh, which I found in the British Museum. It's a, it's a false door, uh, otherwise known as a car door. Uh, that's K-A, not C-A-R. Uh, and it's, called, it's a spirit door, and it's found in the chambers of most Egyptian uh, temples. Some of them are actually tombs. Uh, some of them are actually, there's no, actually no one buried there. They were actually used for the actual ritual itself, and the instructions are actually on the wall. And um, the idea was that these spirit doors were placed in specific hot spots where the Earth's geomagnetic field flow through, allowing the, the, the spirit to flow through all the time. And if you read the inscription carefully on this spirit door, it actually describes the uh, amazement by a servant in the Pharaoh's household when he was actually chosen to join the um, secret mysteries of the Pharaoh. And he was allowed, and he describes it, says, I was allowed to go into the uh, restricted chamber and then he leaves the rest of the story blank, and he says, and at the end, I came back, and I found the way. And that gives the story away, because the way goes all the way back to China in 3000 BC, and the gentleman of the way, and the way was actually the practice of this actual, actual ritual. Uh, we know it survived for 3,000 years because the Essenes also were practicing the way, and even Jesus talks about it in the Bible, I am the way. So he was giving it away, uh, uh, you know, just by using the cunning use of words. Now, we, we hear a lot about, uh, in, in modern times, in popular culture, about near-death experiences, and they're generally involuntary, you know, someone's involved uh, in a... Uh, I, I interviewed a gentleman that was struck by lightning, had an out-of-body experience, a near-death experience. Um, we read about these things all the time. How... Similar, different is the near-death experience that we read about today um, from the near-death experience that these initiates were undergoing. Well, it's good you, you asked that because it's one of the most secret and most hardest things to find out that part of information because that was part of the inner uh, brotherhood. And that's something that you only learn at the last second. But I did have a chance when I was in Montreal to talk to uh, uh, Dr. Susan Barouche, who actually is a medical doctor and has had those experiences and also analyzed them. And she was at my presentation and I was at hers. And uh, we were struck by how similar the cases are. And uh, what I was able to sort of fill in the blanks was the fact that there was a narcotic that was used throughout the world. Uh, and it, it, different narcotics in different parts of the world, but achieving the same thing. And I found out that it took people as much as 10 years to understand how these narcotics worked. So obviously, there was something very dangerous about their use. So someone figured out how under the right circumstances, the right dilution of a narcotic allowed you to, your heart literally reach one beat per minute to a point where you are almost dead, but not quite. And uh, I found out also that the people who administered this drug, uh, if they slipped up on any part of this uh, pre-initiation uh, ritual, they could be banned for life. Uh, so it was very serious. They understood the dangers of what you're about to do. So it seems to me, once I started traveling through Central and South America and also the Middle East um, and also Northern Europe, that we're talking about the very same process. Um, people undertook this narcotic, uh, highly diluted, and they're able to basically do it in three times of the day where they basically allow their heart to almost stop but not quite. Almost Again, sounds like the, the equivalent of the modern-day anesthetologist where they have to get, the, 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 they have to get the, the dosage just right or, or in big trouble. Absolutely. Absolutely. And right. I think that's how they did it. All right, Freddie, stay, uh, stay put. We'll come back and continue to talk about the lost art of resurrection, initiation, secret chambers, and the quest for the other world. And just a reminder, coming up at the, after the top of the hour, open lines right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away.
The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. All right, welcome back. Freddie Silva stays with us as we discuss the lost art of resurrection, and we'll get back to that conversation in just a moment. Just again, a reminder, uh, after the top of the hour, open lines, your chance to ask me anything, and you can take this show just about anywhere you want. Uh, let me just um, very quickly go to the uh, Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, at Richard Serrett, S-Y, because I love you, R-E-T-T, and we'll do our reveal here. Now, again, uh, Albert was uh, guessing a golf ball. Uh, Ryan had a very interesting get, um, uh, guess. I don't want I, I hate using the word guess, but you said a metallic puzzle of some sort. And, uh, Ian, you said something, uh, uh, circular, spherical, something like that. Let me just go to the Twitter feed here, and let's see, what do we have? Um, Paul Smith, a chain, necklace, paper clips, something, something sort of links of silver or gold. Uh, Rasmussen, a pencil-like object. James Grimmer, a pair of sunglasses. Uh, Sally. Something roundish and fuzzy. A sheep with lots of curly wool. A, co- a cute toy sheep. Uh, Benjamin. Cinnamon toast or a breakfast item. Amanda. I see a pearl, uh, a pearl necklace. Um, Heidi. Uh, it's a rock. Uh, Ross. A compact disc, but not sure of the band. <laughs> and uh, Seven Flamingos. A miniature red fire truck. Uh, well, I'm sorry. Nobody really came close this time around. Let's open it up. And there we go. It's a Frisbee. Can we see that on the YouTube stream? All right. Back in a few weeks with another edition of What's in the Box. All right. Back to our interview with uh, Freddie Silva. And uh, we were talking about um, the um, this drug. Uh, and I guess from culture to culture, the Peruvians used something, I'm guessing they're using available natural ingredients to make this drug that would induce a near-death experience. And you said that they could, they could get the heartbeat down to one beat per minute. So all outward appearances would be that this person would be in fact dead. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, uh, at this point, the person is laying comatose. And, uh, one of the most, uh, one of the surviving descriptions that I found was actually in Persia. And it talks about how the, at this point, the priestesses who actually had the highest, uh, level of access to the inner chamber, uh, there was, they would sort of surround the body. And for as much as seven days, and this is quite an extreme example that I found, um, for seven days, they would actually sit around the, uh, the body of this person and they would actually tone or hum or sing, uh, verses from a special book. And they would do this to sort of uh, create a kind of um, force field because they recognize that uh, when your soul has left the body, there's a good possibility that something else might pop in, and you don't want that happening. Uh, you, you know, they would hate for the soul to be trapped in another level of reality, come back and find that the, the host uh, body has been taken over by somebody else. So, again, they also uh, said that this was a high responsibility, which is why the women actually had the highest responsibility of all. Uh, and, again, one reason why the uh, emerging church left the women out of the whole equation. Um, so, 
Yes, they were very serious about the, uh, making sure that the initiates not only had years of training, but they, um, the people who were administering the drugs also had plenty of training. And as far as I know, I don't think anyone actually died, or at least there are no surviving uh, records to show. But um, there is one account that talks about how one person describes the coming back out into the physical world as a sort of an uncomfortable re-entry and, and, a, dif- and a difficult recovery for a few days. They'd be quite groggy, and uh, even when they were taken out of the chamber by the priestesses, they would stand on a a mound or an entrance, and the first thing that they would see would be uh, Venus rising above the horizon just before the sunrise on the equinox. What, how did these people, those that were, that were writing about it, and perhaps, it, again, like with Plato or Pythagoras, it was kind of veiled in their writing, but wh- how did they describe these other worlds? The uh, descriptions actually started appearing around the second century with Greek writers uh, who were taken on the mystery secrets of the Near East. In fact, they seemed to have just borrowed from the sects that were being murdered left and right by the Catholic Church or the uh, emerging church at the time. And they recognized the importance of this because they'd read about it so much in Egypt when the uh, Ptolemaic period had taken over in Egypt around the time of uh, Cleopatra and Alexander the Great. And uh, they recognize the importance of this. So we get to learn something from them because the standards, as we're reaching the uh, the recent historical era, started getting a bit more lax. So this is where I've started to pick up a bit more of the written information. And they do describe sometimes how the world that you're traveling through is uh, very harrowing at first. Uh, And this is something they also found in uh, Peru. They talk about the soul having to traverse these two rivers. They're always uh, guided by two black dogs that can see in the dark while your soul acclimates to a new dimension. Uh, They talk about how there are many discarnate bodies and uh, unusual-looking creatures which have no bearing uh, on your uh, normal everyday life. And this is part of the training, apparently, uh, which is trying to make sure you are not induced in fear during your first few minutes when you're leaving the physical and traveling to another level of reality. You would find things and encounter things which you could not understand because there was no reference for it on Earth or in your daily life. The idea was not to get distracted by any of this, not to fall into that energy of fear. Keep straight, follow the two dogs, cross the bridge, and once you've crossed the bridge, you are in a field of reeds. And after that, they described the whole place as a kind of a paradisical landscape where color is much more accentuated, sound is more divine, um, and everything takes on this incredible color. And uh, one account actually describes um, seeing the the whole area as if the sun was still shining at midnight and everything had a a wonderful glow about it. So it's quite clear that uh, the few surviving accounts do pretty much state that these people were struggling to actually describe in ordinary language what they had experienced in this extraordinary landscape. But as far as they were concerned, this was not a dream. This was very much as real and tangible as you would have been in normal waking everyday life. All right, another time out. Come back and finish up with Freddie Silva, The Lost Art of Resurrection, Initiation, Secret Chambers, and the Quest of the Other World. I'm back with more of our conversation in uh, mere moments. And uh, just a reminder, uh, Freddie's website, invisibletemple.com, invisibletemple.com. Stay with us. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 
416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. We are back with Freddie Silva. Uh, and a reminder again, coming up after the top of the hour, open lines. Let me give you the numbers now. And uh, these will come in handy. Uh, out, out of town, toll free, 866-740-4740. 866-740-4740. And in the greater Toronto area, 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740. Uh, Freddie Silva stays with us. Uh, let's, let's talk about the, uh, the temples, the secret chambers, uh, where the, uh, this is where the initiation took place, correct? That's right, yes. Now, you uh, grew up, you, mis- sorry, I was going to say, because you, you, did you not grow up near Stonehenge, or at least you were, you lived in that area? Yeah, I was very spoiled uh, when I was writing my first book on the uh, crop circle phenomenon. Uh, I actually lived right in between Avebury and Stonehenge. Uh, you don't get more spoiled than that. No, but did Stone, does Stonehenge figure in this at all? Was that used as an initiation site for this, this uh, metaphorical resurrection? No, it was used for a very different reasons, uh, almost like a meeting place and a calendar. Uh, most of these sacred sites have multiple purposes about them, but uh, the, there is a place just north of that, uh, and actually even closer to where my cottage used to be, and it's, it's a long barrow. And uh, what essentially a long barrow is, it's a very long cigar-shaped enclosure uh, made of uh, alternate layers of organic and inorganic material, kind of like an artificial cave, which sits above the ground, like a, almost like a Pythagorean triangle, and it has massive stones at the entrance. And it's like you're going into the mouth of, the, of a beast that swallows you up. Uh, and that's the whole purpose. Um, if anybody remembers the story of uh, Osiris, Anybody ever wondered why it took 72 people to kill him and chop him up into little bits? Um, this story happens all around the world with different people. Uh, the, the story of the initiate, when you go into these secret chambers, is that you have to basically strip as much of your physical uh, baggage as you can to allow the soul to wander free in, into a much finer level of reality. So the metaphor of, of killing yourself or dismembering yourself was literally just telling you that uh, you, know, you have to fast. You have to leave your physical uh, worries and your baggage at the door, and then you go into the mouth of uh, this chamber, which looks like a big beast that's about to devour you, and you go inside, and that's where you do your ceremony. So the uh, West Kennet Long Barrow, uh, which is just uh, south of the Avebury Complex, is one such place. And uh, there are many uh, similar cases around the world where the designs vary according to culture, but fundamentally they are the same. And uh, one of the things that links them all together is the fact that they are very regularly called the bridal chamber. And I always wanted to know why, what kind of bride are these people marrying? Because the initiate always, was always said to go, go into the other world and marry a divine bride, which of course brings up the stories of uh, the Arthurian legend and the Holy Grail. And that's exactly what it's about. Uh, you see, in the uh, ancient days, the, uh, our ancestors figured out that wisdom in all its components, uh, when you uh, go into another level of reality, the whole source of wisdom is personified by a beautiful maiden, a divine virgin. And that's the, the maiden that you marry at the end of your quest as a knight. And uh, she is the one that, uh, to whom you basically lay down your life for and you protect her secrets at all costs. So whenever you see uh, any chamber around the world that's called a bridal chamber, you can pretty much be assured that that's, that was what was used to be called the restricted chamber 
of access uh, where you undertook that final out-of-body experience. And sometimes there would be um, there would be natural caves on sacred mountains. Uh, as we began to build more uh, man-made temples, we'd actually imitate the uh, sacred mountain by creating ziggurats. So in mm-hmm. Persia, the, the little chamber on top of the ziggurats um, of some of the uh, kings uh, that were uh, buried there, um, those were actually used for ritual, not for burial. The kings actually tend to be buried under the ziggurat, as Alexander the Great once found to his dismay. Um, and also, again, in Egypt, you have the same concept where they actually created uh, artificial caves under the ground. And uh, one of them specifically, the tomb of Tutmosis III in the Valley of the Kings, there was never anyone buried in it. But if you read the instructions on the wall, it quite clearly tells you that it's a story of an initiate who goes into the other world and is expected to come back into his living body. And they're quite unambiguous about that story. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the chamber of Tutmosis even features uh, next to the sarcophagus, which is a beautiful piece of work, when no one was ever buried in it. In fact, his body was actually found buried a mile away in the Temple of Hatshepsut. So you have to ask yourself, well, how does one guy need two places of burial for one body? It doesn't add up. And the other reason is that um, the, the giveaway is that there was a well inside of Tutmosis III's supposed burial chamber. Now, why would a dead guy need a drink of water for? Uh, and so these little clues start giving you an idea of what these bridal chambers really were used for. These these sacred chambers, these temples, what was significant about their construction? I mean, you refer to them as uh, living organisms, but how did they aid and assist in this initiation? Was there something mystical about it? Was there something to do with their what, uh, electromagnetic field? What was it? Oh, it's a cunning technology, uh, and it's, uh, it's something that I learned when I was researching for my second book. And uh, pretty much uh, most of the sacred sites on Earth, uh, as we probably know by now, are all located on the Earth's geomagnetic hotspots. And they take advantage of that energy in order to create a certain rarefied space inside that differs from the outside space. Now, we now know with our technology that we can measure this uh, frequency and this energy. And we find that, yes, these spaces do shield outside interference and allow the space inside to draw your frequency of your brain down to a place where you become much more perceptive and also receptive to finer, more penetrating frequencies. Like a Faraday cage. The actual process. Like a Faraday cage. Uh, that's part of the actual process, yes. It's, uh, I think it's actually drawn from that ancient technology, yes. And also, of course, uh, the Great Pyramid is a great example. The choice of limestone, not just any old limestone, but a limestone that actually serves to, sh- uh, on one level, shield uh, information, uh, I mean, shield the frequencies, but the second layer of limestone actually helps to conduct them into the center of the pyramid where there's red um, sandstone, sorry, a red uh, granite, one of the most uh, conductive uh, uh, stones on Earth, which, of course, is packed with magnetite and crystal. And, of course, that's the actual place where you actually make sure that uh, all the energy is attracted to that uh, chamber called the King's Chamber, where, of course, we have a sarcophagus where no one was ever buried, and that's one of the most famous bridal chambers that's sitting right in front of you. Uh, In fact, it took me years to find it look at this from the perspective of the living resurrection and go, of course, my God, the building was used on uh, from one level as an actual imitation of the underworld because you go from the, the bottom of the building, uh, which is a natural cave that comes up through what, where the Nile used to flow, and then you go along the shaft, and as you go progressively up the Grand Gallery to the King's Chamber, 
the stone gets more polished, well, that's a metaphor for the initiate who starts off as a rough diamond and eventually ends up in the king's chamber as a polished stone. So all of these things were all metaphorical, but they're also practical. There was a certain spiritual technology involved. And uh, we, know we now have the technology with which to measure this, and it's, it's absolutely true. All the temples around the world and the effort that they went into to get these stones from hundreds of miles away was deliberate. It was trying to induce a certain effect which then mirrors the human body because your body is electromagnetic. You have magnetite flowing through uh, your brain. You also have iron in your blood. Uh, you have the crystalline structure in your bone. So the temples and the human body literally are mirrors of each other. So you see how there's a wonderful relationship that actually you built these uh, man-made structures in order to mimic the human temple, but at the same time allow the human temple to forget its physicality and travel to another state of reality. Oh, these chambers aren't active all the time, are they? Or do they, don't they have to be reactivated or reawakened by some ritual? Uh, some of them are still a very much awake. Um, places that get a lot of visitors every day that pay them very scant attention or you know, flippant attention like the Great Pyramid. I mean, you go in there some days, it's, uh, it's a hellhole. Uh, you actually have to go in there and do ceremony. Uh, and, uh, you know, cleanse the place out with certain procedures, which are not that difficult. Anybody can do this, and I teach these people on my tours. And, um, I mean, I've been privy to one particular experience where I actually saw in complete darkness in the king's chamber, and there are three people who will back me up on this because they saw this too, and we weren't expecting this to happen. Uh, we did certain chants in there, and we actually saw people coming out of the stones and surrounding us. And I've actually taken people in there and that a similar ceremony uh, in the dark, and half of the people in the group, without me telling them anything, also saw those people coming out and stand behind them. And I thought I was uh, one of the uh, sort of one of those rare examples of people who had experienced this until I read a book from 1920s by a man called Paul Brunton. Turns out, and this book was in my library for years, I'd never got round to reading it until I was researching this. Turns out that he had had exactly the same experience as I had, and he'd spent the whole night in the king's chamber. He saw exactly the same people. He describes them in exactly the same way. And uh, now that this is in print, I've spoken to uh, several scientists who do sound energy work at the Great Pyramid and other places, and they confided in me, and I won't mention who they are because they've asked me not to, because obviously their position as scientists, they don't want to be ridiculed, but they'll confide in me and they'll say, yes, there are certain frequencies that when you hit the, frequency, the resonant frequency of the building and the chamber, stuff happens. Things start coming out of the woodwork, so to speak, and it's like magic, and it's the most wonderful experience because it's non-threatening. Uh, and they actually talk about the sense of being wrapped in a sense of complete love. And to hear a scientist say that, it's wonderful and reassuring. Well, that's something else we often hear associated with experience, being surrounded by love. We only have about 90 seconds here, but uh, um, didn't a group at Princeton study the the effects of uh, you know this being in in these types of chambers on on human consciousness? Oh, it's one of the great experiments. In fact, PEAR, uh, which is the acronym of the group, I don't think they're any longer active, um, either out of old age or lack of uh, money. But their charge was to find that medium point between science and mysticism, and their experiments are extraordinary. I think they're still online. And one of them was actually going around measuring the effect of prayer at sacred sites and non-sacred sites, so you can have a barometer of what works and what doesn't to prove whether the site's sacredness by itself actually has some energy to it. And they actually found that, yes, to cut a long story short, uh, the sites just by themselves 
resonate a frequency that is equivalent to a large meditating group. But when you add a certain meditation and a certain mindfulness to these sites, things really take off and uh, they were able to actually measure the inclusion of human consciousness as part of this actual technology. So the temples by themselves resonate a certain frequency, but we are also part of that technology. It's a wonderful two-way mechanism. Final question, just a, a quick answer here, and that is uh, the, this other world that uh, these initiates access during this ritual, is that the afterlife? Is that where we return after physical death? According to the Hindus and the Egyptians and the Chinese and the uh, Sumerians and the Peruvians, absolutely. Uh, it's a big, uh, it literally is the original World Wide Web. Uh, and there is no separation between us and them. Uh, it's, it's nothing more than an illusion. Uh, this is why I describe the other world as being the, uh, the room next door uh, to my office. Because it's literally a whisper away from our physical world. We just get seduced by the physical world and we, we tend to forget there's a bigger picture out there. And this is why they built these places and why they taught us to uh, these procedures so we can for one moment in our uh, very lives experience what the bigger picture really is and come back and feel like a real God. All right, Freddie. in charge of our process. Freddie, th thank you so much. It was magic. Thank you for this last hour. I appreciate it. Good talking to you again. My pleasure, Richard. Freddie Silva, The Lost Art of Resurrection, InvisibleTemple.com, the website. Open lines on the other side, the website, strangeplanet.ca. Follow the truth.